Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm so excited that you're tuning in for this incredibly educational episode. This is probably one of the most educational episodes we've had on our podcast because we are speaking with Danny Cecciarelli, who is not only an authorized level two Ashtanga yoga teacher who's been practicing Ashtanga yoga for well over 20 years, but she's also a marine biologist. So in this episode, we talk about all things coral reef related. Uh, Danny spends a lot of her time on a boat out in the ocean. She lives in Australia on Magnetic Island and we are taking a deep dive into the health of our environment, the health of our oceans, what we can do, what's been our effect on the decline of our environment and the health of our oceans and what is our future looking like. Danny's such an inspiring human being. It's incredible how she's been able to integrate being a mother, um, becoming pregnant while she was still in her undergrad degree, still working on achieving her undergrad degree and went all the way to um, attain a PhD, as well as practice Ashtanga yoga, travel to India and raise three now growing boys. We're going to talk about how to integrate yoga into real life and how often when we get too obsessed with perfection or perfecting something in the practice, it actually leads to disintegration rather than integration, which takes us away from the experience of yoga rather than leading us to this uh, sense of union, union within ourselves, union within our communities, our families, union with loved ones or colleagues, um, and then also uh, union with our environment, our natural place in the world. So I know it's a little bit long, but stick with us till the end because it starts to get really good at about an hour and 40 minutes when we dive into the complexities of ahimsa and how you know, practicing ahimsa isn't as straightforward or as simple as it may seem and that um, we have to take in all kinds of factors uh, into consideration while we try to practice or do our best in practicing non-harming uh, when especially when we consider not just other beings but our world our global world and the health of our climate and the health of our ecology I know you're going to love this discussion. We dive into social media and media bias, uh, our favorite show on HBO, Succession, and uh, how this all relates to yoga and the experiences that we are currently having in our world, including uh, peer review research and the importance of doing your own research and fact-checking and just a whole web of issues come up. So I, it's one of my favorite episodes. Danny's hilarious. Um, you'll get to hear about her practicing with chickens, and you're just gonna, you're gonna love this episode. It was such a joy to listen to again while I was editing, and of course, it was more than a joy to record the first time. So much laughter, so much fun. So I want you to dive into it. 
on Saturday, this Saturday coming up, October 16th. I would love for you to join me for a primary series class with a conference. This is all through Miami Life Center. You can find the link on my website. So if you'd love to practice primary series with me and uh, stick around for a short conference discussion afterwards, it would just be a pleasure to have you join me on Saturday, October 16th. So I'm going to leave you to the rest of the podcast episode. I hope you love it as much as I do. I'm going to listen to this one again and again. Warning. The following program contains scenes with coarse language and nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm Harmony and I'm here with Russell. Well, hello. Um, Today we have a special guest and our special guest has asked for a special beginning or introduction to the show. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start and then she's going to finish. Okay. And then we'll, we'll get down to really introducing her. Okay. Let's do that. But she wanted to to start in a special way. And the special way is to uh, acknowledge the indigenous people in which we, we, um, we rest and live and on their land. Well, on the land, yes. So <laughs> we're located in the traditional territories of uh, the Nitsitapi, the Blackfoot Confederacy, and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. And the city of Calgary is also home to the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. I would like to acknowledge the Wulguru Kaba, the traditional owners and custodians of Yunbunun, or Magnetic Island, and I would like to recognize their continuing connection to the land and sea and pay my respects to their elders past and present. That's beautiful, Danny. Thank you, Danny Ciccarelli, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, and you're, t- you are actually on a very magical island, aren't you? Oh, yeah. It's an amazing place. It's really stunning. Beautiful landscape. Um, we're surrounded by coral reefs. Um, we're right up in the tropics of Eastern Australia and in the middle, actually in the middle portion of the Great Barrier Reef. That's incredible. So just to, to lay the groundwork for our listeners, um, you're in Australia now on that, what was the name of that island again? Magnetic Island. Oh, Magnetic yeah. Island. Yeah, it says right there. Yeah. And <laughs> so you're the you're a level two authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher, mm-hmm. a celebrated coral singer, and you have a PhD in coral reef ecology. <laughs> so I <That's> think it. <laughs> you, you must sing to the coral reefs. I think that's what that <laughs> That is so. Also, you're unbelievably the mother of three 20 year old boys, which is striking. It's almost like you, you did you give birth to full grown men, like like Athena bursting forth from <laughs> Zeus's skull. Um, no, that's not where they came from. Harmony, do you need to tell Russell how children are born? <laughs> we've been we've been working on that. Um, You're only like about 28 yourself, Danny. I just find I it very difficult to believe that you have 20-year-old full-on men and that you've just given birth to them. I just oh, don't understand I've, that. Yeah, I, I find it really difficult to believe, too, that they're in their 20s. Um, but no, I'm not 28. <laughs> hmm. I'm I met 48. your boys in my store. You're 48? Yeah, I am. You're not, you're not 
You're not too much older than I am, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> no, well, um, I, I, um, I had the boys in my 20s. So they are now about the age that I was when I had them. And it is, it's kind of hard to believe when I look at them and they're these great big hairy men. And I was like, wow, yeah. where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of going through a similar experience, even just watching Jediah grow up. Like, yeah. Like I recently, I mean, he's 10 and a half now, but you know, he's, he's getting like a couple little pimples and like, you know, Ooh. the hormones are kind of just, just his, starting. His legs are properly hairy. Yeah, they're getting there. And, I, and I'm like, wow, he's not really a baby anymore. He's sort of this, he's turning into like this little man child in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? To watch them slowly become really their own person. And, um, and I guess the changing role of, being the parent like you know you sort of I don't know how your parenting is but you know I was a, a bit of a dragon when they were little because I I was <laughs> I was really young myself and I was like I looked at these little monster toddlers you know what they like when they're two and three <laughs> yeah. they're like little monsters and you're Especially like boys <laughs> oh my god I'm gonna have to live with you for like 18 years at least so I thought I don't you know, I don't want to live with monsters. So it's, and it's my job to train you yeah. to be a nice person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to be a little vicious sometimes, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And so oh. I think I was quite vicious, but, um, but then when they, you know, when they are like 10, 11, 12, you have to start giving them a voice and you have to be really careful about how much they get to call the shots and how much you call the shots. Because really, I mean, at, at that age, they don't yet really have the life experience to make the big decisions, but you can mm. let them try and, you know, try their hand at making decisions about, you know, things in the day or whatever. But yeah, I found that, I found it quite tricky letting go of the reins as they mm. were growing up. Do you, do you have this expression in Australia, um, uh, you should see dad now, he's really mellowed. Do you, do you say that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, my dad is definitely mellowed. I think he's mellowed anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was, I was, I had a terrible fight with Chadaya this morning. We were cross with each other, and um, I won't, I won't get into it. But it's not atypical, <laughs> and I can think, I can see it that at some point in the future, he's going to say to Harmony, "It's like, well, you know, Russ is, Russell's really mellowed." since when I was a kid and it's like no it's not it's not that I've mellowed it's that I've gone back to being the sweet young boy I was before I was raising you yeah exactly and then I turned into the the fucking asshole that my mom was and uh it's yeah it's it can it's rough to suddenly see yourself as a as a parent oh, and yeah. doing exactly the same reactive impulsive shitty things that my folks did because they just couldn't fucking handle it anymore oh yeah oh look i mean <clears throat> i had that i mean i was raised with quite a bit of anger and violence so and when i you know when i had ty my firstborn at 23 and um i was in a situation where i was still studying and it wasn't really a good time to have a baby and right. um and so i just I found myself really shocked to be in that situation and I felt 
a lot of resentment, not at him, but at the situation. And so I started parenting with all this anger and I had Mm -hmm. to really catch myself and go, oh my God, I'm just repeating this pattern. And we do that, right? We sort of repeat the generational patterns. And I had to really catch myself and and basically, you know, not do that anymore and retrain my idea of who I was going to be as a parent and how Mm -hmm. I was going to relate to my children. And um, yeah, yeah, so I mean, poor Ty, you know, like the firstborn always cops it, don't they? And (laughs) sometimes sometimes I joke, well, no wonder he's throwing himself off cliffs these days. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He's your skydiver, right? Yeah, he's a skydiving instructor. And but in his free time, he base jumps in a wingsuit. So if you've seen those YouTube videos of those flying squirrels. Not safe. That's an understatement. <laughs> I remember he took you uh, skydiving, though, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. So the day when he had his 20th birthday, he happened to be working not so far from here. And so yeah. his his dad and his brother and I went down to celebrate with him and we jumped out of the plane with him. And I pulled rank because I'm the mum. So I was like, I'm going with him. <laughs> I'm strapping myself <laughs> to him. So it's quite an interesting um, concept to strap yourself to your child and jump out of a plane. And, you know, it's like, don't kill your mother. <laughs> Pray for your life. Does it, does it feel like falling? Oh, uh, in the first instance, yes. And then, you know, when you hit terminal velocity, you don't really... And you're so far off the ground that it's really a bit abstract. It's right. not, you, you can't, until you get a lot closer, you can't really get the sense that you're, you know, the ground's coming up to meet you. Um, so, you, yeah. That's yeah. the theory of relativity, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's incredible to feel it happening on your, so the first time I jumped out, I was just completely freaked out and I just, you know, didn't really register what was happening yeah but I did it again I went to visit him in Norway he lives in Norway now and um and we did it again and because I knew what was going to happen I really loved it and it did feel like flying you know and um you know that airplane window view of the earth where you look Mm -hmm. out the airplane window and you can see it all laid out and you can see the you know the sphere the horizon bending and all that it's like yeah. being in it without the airplane in between. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So wow. I really did love it. Yeah. Also good to know that it's not really going to like sink in that you're about to die until you get a lot closer to the earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like if that chute doesn't open, you know, just enjoy the ride for a while. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And you he hear did- all the time. About people that bounce and live no through it. No one bounces. No, no, you hear about that. You do. People who live through that, and you, you, you'll die falling out of a, you know, second story. But like, you know, thirty thousand feet up, like some people bounce. I don't and they know about live. that, Russell. No, I've heard you hear stories Have about you? it all the time. Oh, all I the time. Um, yeah, he has a he has a bank of stories. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'll ask Ty. I think I'll trust his sources more yeah, than yours. Exactly. Yeah. Look it up. That's ask what, the professional. That's what I Google know, that's is it. for. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know, speaking of of stories, I I was reading through your material and all the the 
blogs and videos that you sent us in preparation for this, Danny. It was all really very fascinating. And taught, you know, learning about your youth and learning about your your life, I had all these little fantasies percolating of like Greek and Roman mythology, like um, like Homer's Odysseus strapped to the to the mast of a boat, serenaded by sirens going mad, or, um, or Harry Hamlin as Perseus in the Clash of the Titans. So there you are, growing up in Italy and Syria, fascinated by the sea. And I could just see you singing to Odysseus as he came by and like <laughs> murdering him. And I just, I wanted to know, like, so you said you were right away fascinated by the sea. And, you know, and I, I wonder what, how that was as a young girl. Like, were you escaping something at home? You, you mentioned that it was, it was violent. And was that in Italy? It was like that. Or was it, was it like that then? Um, I, yeah, I don't know about escaping, but yeah, we, so there was a lot of anger in, I, basically my dad was, you know, he was sort of, um, I think now that I understand better, he's a scientist himself and he had this calling to, mm-hmm. you know, solve big problems in the world, um, to do with, you know, food security and agriculture. And so because wow. he had, he had this calling himself and he had, you know, he, he often went to these incredibly impoverished, drought-stricken countries to do his work, and then he'd come back and be, you know, sort of have this burden of this family. And so I understand a little better his frustration. But as a young girl, you know, growing up with, surrounded by, I was, you know, I, I grew up in fear of him. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you know, in awe of him. So it's a, it's a kind of a weird double-edged thing Mm -hmm. but um we did often go so I lived in Italy first when I was very young and then we lived in Syria he got a job in Syria um researching drought and agriculture and um and we you know we didn't (laughs) live by the ocean we didn't live on the coast but we would go there every summer we would take a holiday somewhere on the coast either in Italy or in Syria and I just you know, just having my head in the water and looking at things, I was just so fascinated. I was so curious and I just felt like it was this alien world that we were completely not adapted for. And, um, and we're not, I mean, we're not, you know, we're visitors there. And I felt, I always felt privileged to be able to see it. And because we're not, marine animals or mm-hmm. aquatic animals anymore I felt like um you know you, you really are external to it so you're the observer you're just observing what's going on and all the animals there swimming around or whatever they're looking at you and you don't belong there and so they take a look and they're either frightened and swim away or they just go about their business and you just get <laughs> to watch mm-hmm. and um and so I just had this fascination. I, I'm not sure where it came from. And I loved being in the sea. I loved swimming. I learned to swim at three years old. And I just loved the feeling of being submerged. And then, I mean, it was really when when I was at school in Syria watching, you know, when the, the first Life on Earth series came out, David Attenborough? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we were at this tiny international school. And the school principal would gather the whole school 
like 80 kids only, like maybe from kindergarten to grade six or seven, the whole school mm-hmm. would be gathered in one room and we would watch the latest episode. And I oh, remember, wow. yeah, and I would remember, I remember this one, maybe I was 10 or 11 and, and there was this one episode where there were scuba divers underwater doing research. And I was just like, that's it. That's what I want to do. Wow. And it never went away. That's incredible. I I totally understand that feeling because the times when I've never been scuba diving, but when like even just snorkeling, mm. you really get the sense that it's it's like another world or another planet under the yeah. water. And you really feel like you're kind of looking in on, you know, a, an entire universe that is not yours <laughs> exactly and the things I mean the way things are even built down there it's like you know why are we bothering to look for aliens in outer space I mean exactly. corals you know I'm a coral reef ecologist so corals themselves the the things yeah. that build the reef mm-hmm. corals are animals with microscopic algae living in their skin that build themselves a skeleton of stone and all together, all the different corals build these underwater landscapes that are the size of Italy. Like the Great Barrier Reef is like the size of Italy. And, um, you know, like, why are we looking for aliens somewhere else? This is like, yeah. you know, it's really hard to even describe what the building blocks of these underwater ecosystems are because on land, we don't really have a con- context for that. It, it's sort of like, it, breaks your brain just trying to understand it yeah totally we need to just protect (laughs) the aliens that we have here (laughs) on our own planet (laughs) that's it that's it yeah we watched this movie my octopus teacher have you seen that Uh, one yeah it's so beautiful yeah and it's such a beautiful little documentary of of you know his journey and the the affection that grows between him and this this octopus and, like a palpable affection yes. like they really like each other <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's just such a it was such a beautiful film and you really can see how like under the water there's those um like those gardens kelp gardens kelp gardens kelp yeah forests. kelp forests and how incredible you know it just it made me want to like learn how to hold my breath for a long time so i could just go under the ocean and like play with octopus that's it octopi yeah (laughs) Yeah, they don't say octopuses anymore for obvious reasons (laughs) i sometimes i say octopuses just because you have to be silly you have to be silly sometimes otherwise we all get too serious octopuses (laughs) they're so nice That's so cute. <laughs> no, I was I was really taken with her, that little, you know, one-year-old octopus. And she was she was ever so sweet. And there was a moment where you could see that she was like flooded with estrogen. She just wrapped all of her tentacles around this man. It's like, I'm in I wanna I wanna fall in love. <laughs> and, and then and then like a couple days later, she had found a dude and they were like, you know. An octopus. They were uh, yeah. an oct- they were hitting it hard under the coral an reef, octo-dude. you know. And then <laughs> an octo dude. And uh, then she gives birth to something like I don't know, like ten thousand octopus. Is that what it is? I don't know. 
And yeah, well, they're all a bit different. I mean, all the species mm. are different in terms of how right. much they reproduce. So, yeah. but yeah, this, I mean, this was, um, it's quite a small species. And, and, you know, like the other thing that struck me about that movie is just, you know, the fleeting nature of life, right? Like she yeah. only lives, they form this in, intense attachment or, well, the man forms the at- intense attachment. We don't really know <laughs> how, the, how the octopus felt. But then, she felt you the know. Same. She gave him a cuddle. That's what she I gave know. him a cuddle. It's true. But, yeah. you know, yeah. like, <laughs> octopus and squid, they're very intelligent and very curious. In yeah. fact, I think yeah. if we destroy the planet and wipe ourselves out, maybe the next... Um, intelligent species or creatures that evolve will probably be octopus and squid. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! Really? Yeah, they're super they're smart. So smart. We don't even really know how smart they are. And um, and but you know, like she died really, I know. you know, within the year, and that's yeah. normal. It's so sad. It's yeah, normal, it's yeah. just the normal life cycle, you know. Like um, and um. And it, it was very, it was really touching to see it put like that, to see it um, presented like that. Yeah. You know, I, I was uh, growing up in, in New Orleans, you, you hear a lot about uh, Cancer Alley and the, um, the massive amounts of fertilizer and insecticide that wash through our drinking water uh, mm. down the Mississippi. So all that fertilizer goes down and, and we drink it. And then it goes out into the Gulf of Mexico and, and it forms, um, I think it's called a hypoxia. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And then it's, it, it creates a dead zone. Mm. And I just read this morning that the, the, one of the most massive dead zones that they've seen was in the Gulf of Mexico right now. Yeah. And it's, it's this place, I guess, where fish can't breathe. Right. Yeah, hypoxia means low oxygen, right? So mm-hmm. with the dead zones, what happens is the fertilizers stimulate a, a bloom of seaweed, of algae, and then these mm-hmm. decompose and in the decomposition they use up oxygen and because there's so much of it, it uses up all the oxygen in the water and then the other organisms can't breathe. And so, yeah, oh. so it, basically everything dies. And is that what they talk about with, like, say, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef? Is that what's happening? No, it's not quite the same thing. So bleaching, can I can I explain bleaching to you? Is that all right? Is that, do you think yes, listeners please. will be interested? Okay. Yes. Well, so, we, we thought, we heard you when, when you said that you felt that science was an important topic for more people to understand. Well, it's just, I mean, science is a method of inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. So... Science is what we use to try and understand the world. And we use these very distinctive methods to come to conclusions, you know, to kind of go. And basically what happens is is we think something's happening. We look at something and go, I think this fish is behaving like this because of this. And then we find ways to test it. And that often requires, you know, sort of repetitive um, sampling or observations uh, or counting or you know building an experiment and repeating it and controlling it and there's all these ways to reduce bias and then you know when you look at the results usually they're numbers <laughs> or graphs not very yeah. not very exciting <laughs> if you're not excited by you know what the numbers or graphs might mean um, 
And then you come to a conclusion and you say either my hypothesis or my assumption was right or it was wrong. And if I think my assumption was right, this is even to that, we, we, sort of, we never really talk in certainties. We say, well, it's this probability that I'm right, you know, and we are always, we're always willing to be wrong and to be proven wrong. And so there's this whole process of peer review, right? So where, where um, you know, you when you do a study and you think you've found out something, you go to publish it. That's basically how you get it out into the world. But in the process of trying to publish an, a scientific article, it gets sent to all the experts and they mm-hmm. hammer it. So the p- scientific peer review is like the Ashtanga police. it's just it's the checking and rechecking and questioning if people have done things the right way and then eventually if it passes through that then you get your level two authorization (laughs) or you get your you know (laughs) you get your article published yeah um and but then still i mean you know the way you have to write the methods is so that somebody could repeat it again and, right. mm-hmm. and you know, test your result themselves. Right. And so, I mean, that's yeah. the same with Ashtanga, right? There's a method and, um, and we're all really, what we're doing is every day on the mat, we're testing the method again and again <laughs> to see if it that's works. Right. And there are predictable right. results that are, you know, almost universal depending yeah. on, on the circumstances of the person. You're, exactly. So you go, this this person calmed down quite a bit when they started practicing their sun salutations. Yeah. But you always, I mean, you know, the thing about Ashtanga is that you're adding yourself into the picture. So it's Ashtanga or yoga is like science. It's a method of inquiry, Mm -hmm. but you're, you know, you've got your, you're you're in the picture. So it's more complicated and it's harder to get rid of the bias. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. We, you have to observe the bias. Yeah. And see who is this person talking right That's now. That's it. And it's, yeah. it's, it's harder because you associate yourself with yourself, whereas you can easily disassociate yourself from your observations. If Unless, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's easier in some fields of science than in others. Like if you're an mm-hmm. anthropologist studying people, and people's behaviors and social structures and you know often the method is to live with people um, of different cultures but you're Mm -hmm. in there you're you're part of it yeah you can't really leave yourself behind and all of your history and memories and ideas about the world that's right in which these people react to you know you being you yeah which is and I mean, Sometimes we have the a problem same. for me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> for me too. <laughs> but so hang, I want to go back and and uh, explain bleaching to you. Yes, I, yes, please. Yes, please. I, okay. I have a follow-up question about science. All right. <laughs> All right. So um, bleaching. So a coral reef is built of corals. And the like I said before, a coral is an animal. And mm, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's like um, it, to I think the best way to describe a coral is if you imagine a jellyfish, mm-hmm. shrink it down to about the size, say, of your fingernail. But all, all species of corals have different size polyps or, or jellyfish 
Um, anyway, okay. take this upside down jellyfish, turn it up, mm -hmm. take a jellyfish, turn it upside down, shrink it down to the size of your fingernail, and then link it to lots of other similar sized upside down jellyfish so that they're like a connected colony or a car. It's like a carpet of jellyfish upside down. <laughs> yeah. And then this carpet creates its own limestone skeleton. And depending yeah. on the species, it's a different shape. So you have the branches and you have the plates and the vases and the boulders and the brain corals, etc. So wow. that's how they make these different shaped limestone skeletons. I thought they were just fucking rocks. I know, right? <laughs> I know. Well, it's really, we have actually, you know, because I'm, I'll explain this later, but I'm usually the fish person. And we have yeah. fish, often coral reef scientists, you know, will have a little um, rivalry between the coral people and the fish people. And right. the, fish, the fish people say that corals are just slimy rocks that are habitat for fish. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually the rocks are covered in this living carpet of little upside down jellyfish. Wow. And so um, because in, in New Orleans, I was also called the fish person. But that really? was because I believed in evolution. Uh, oh, really? It's true, though. No, they called me fish man or fish boy. A right. lot of the brothers in my school called me fish wow. boy. Wow, fish boy. Because it was like, yeah, he believes in evolution. He, say, he thinks we come from fish. Everything you tell me about America makes wow. me more scared to ever go there. Oh, wow. Yeah, me too. I have to tell you a secret. I yeah. have to tell you a secret. I was actually born in North Carolina. Oh, oh so you can you can hear it in your accent but go on so tell it's us got, it's how... got nothing it's got zero things to do with my accent but never mind i'll tell you about that later <laughs> I, I hear it i hear it no you keep going so okay i have, I have so a quick question about us... coral yeah, yeah go okay on. so when i was a, a young girl my grandmother had like pieces of coral in her bathroom as oh, decoration murdered yeah. little so were those beings. like like dead beings yeah those were the skeletons wow yeah, yeah. she had skeletons yeah. in her bathtub <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and her closet actually <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> okay so imagine mm. this carpet of jelly upside down jellyfish covering this stony skeleton made of limestone mm -hmm. and i can i call the jellyfish polyps is that yeah, yeah be... go on okay yeah, i'm gonna call them right. polyps so... i have my own polyps <laughs> <laughs> um, these coral polyps have inside their skin microscopic algae mm -hmm. the microscopic algae photosynthesize like plants and right. so photo photosynthesis is the process of using carbon dioxide water and sunlight to create sugar mm -hmm. and in in the context of plants the sugars are like the carbohydrates they're the carbon that creates the tree or the plant like the matter right of the plant mm -hmm. so when you eat a carrot you're actually eating something that's made of thin air <laughs> isn't that cool mm -hmm. anyway that is amazing. so <laughs> so um so in the with the corals though what happens to the sugar it gets given to the coral animal. So the, the little microscopic algae create the food that the coral eats. 
And in return, the little microscopic algae get fed on the waste products of the coral and get protected a little bit by living inside the coral. Right. And, um, but what happens is that this relationship is incredibly sensitive to changes in temperature. And so when the water heats up, because of global warming, when you have, you know, right. the average temperature of the ocean is always rising because mm-hmm. the ocean is absorbing heat from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This relationship between the microscopic algae and the little coral polyp breaks down and becomes toxic. And so the little mm-hmm. coral animal has to spit out the algae that are feeding it so that it can survive because otherwise, you know, the the toxic relationship will break down the actual whole animal and the whole thing will die. But the problem is that to save itself, it has to spit out the very thing that feeds it. So so it starves. It starves. Yeah, essentially uh, it starves. And we call it bleaching because the coral polyp, the animal, is transparent. And it's the algae that gives it the color. Without the algae, you're seeing the transparent coral skin and you're seeing the white skeleton beneath. That's why we call it bleaching. And so a bleached coral is not dead yet. It's starving. It's extremely stressed. And if conditions return to normal quickly, it can survive. It can regain. It can sort of regather the algae from the water around it yeah but if the conditions stay too hot for too long the whole thing dies the coral dies and you know it bleaching happens in localized places here and there most summers but this really widespread global scale bleaching this is something new that Mm. the first time it happened was 1998 on a global wow. scale and since then it's sort of been happening at shorter intervals until in 2016 and 2017 especially on the great barrier reef we had these catastrophic events where the water the, the the heat wave the marine heat wave was so extensive that the whole great barrier reef the size of italy completely bleached and mm. the northern third of it most of that didn't recover What happens when it it doesn't recover? So the corals die and then you're left with literally rocks. But Mm -hmm. what happens is that to reproduce the corals, each little upside down jellyfish or polyp spits out eggs and sperm into the water. And as they get fertilized, they get swept away on the currents, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when it's, they, they develop into larvae, the, the sort of the baby corals develop, develop out in the o- open ocean and get swept around by the currents. And then when they're, you know, young babies, not, mm-hmm. you know, complete sort of tiny babies, but when they, they said they've grown a bit, it takes maybe a couple of weeks and they're ready to become corals. They need somewhere to settle, somewhere, a hard surface. They can't settle on sand or silt. And, and if they find a good spot, then they will settle and turn into and grow and turn into the corals that we were used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's 
that's a positive thing because even these expanses of dead corals after a bleaching event can still receive coral larvae from other places that haven't oh. died. Okay. That's how it can so, recover. So the recovery is possible. It's still happening now. In fact, we're seeing this year, we've seen the best recovery in a long time because we've had a couple of years now without a heat wave and without a cyclone or a storm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the latest report from the scientists doing the, the monitoring of the Great Barrier Reef is this really fantastic recovery. Mm. Mm. And maybe less traffic. Maybe a little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting that you're asking that because I, I did look it up on the, the there's, yeah. you know, the, there's these dedicated research stations that measure carbon dioxide from the atmosphere all around mm -hmm. the world. And unfortunately, it was a tiny blip and we're still <laughs> emitting as much carbon dioxide as ever. <laughs> well, that's, that's fascinating to know, yeah. right? Yeah. Because yeah. it was a pretty big it, big thing it does really seem like our situation is quite dire i remember, i was reading just this morning uh that our gulf stream has shown indications of stopping yeah i just read that which, too which doesn't sound good what is that exactly that would be like um not all of the heat from Jamaica not being able to get to Europe and then it freezing over? Is that sort of the situation? More or less, yeah. So the Gulf Stream basically creates the climate that we're used to. And if, yeah. it, cha if it changes in any big way, it will change the climate patterns that we're used to. Right. And, that doesn't and sound good. No. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it sounds like we might be relocating. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere to go, though. Yeah, there's no Does planet you... B. <laughs> yeah, there's no planet B. Well, everything always takes us back to the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, well, <laughs> it does. It, it, it is worrying. You you wonder if you know Earth's natural uh, restoration cycle includes you know white you know an extinction event that would be in everyone's best interests. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, I mean, we are in the middle of an extinction event. We are we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there there you know it's there's a common term that's now being used, which is the Anthropocene. It's mm -hmm. the era which is governed by us and our activities. Anthro being. Anthro being human, yes. And, mm -hmm. um, and we are, we're, you know, like often I think, well, I've been asked before, like what's the point of all this biodiversity? Why is it a problem if we lose species? And why is it a problem if we, you know, eat all of the, the turtles and there's no more turtles? Who cares? Like, you know, <laughs> What you know, yeah. like this kind of yeah. question, you know, like they, could, they couldn't hack it, Danny, right? And That's I, what people, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they so, yeah, but, fast enough. But it, that's it. They're just like, you know, they failed, so why can't we just eat them? No, I'm just kidding, turtle <laughs> right. lovers. Sorry, but um, so I mean, and I think of it like this, right? So, human beings have flourished at a time of really high biodiversity, at a time where we've had jungles and coral reefs and so many species on the planet of like from microbes to blue whales and weird and wonderful things and amazing natural ecosystems 
And we've flourished because that system has supported us. And mm -hmm. it's, it's like a fabric, right, where all the threads, each thread is a species and they're all interwoven and we don't understand exactly how. And as humans, we should be behaving like a thread in the fabric. And right. instead, instead we're behaving like a toddler who's using the fabric as a hammock and is bored and pulling threads out of the fabric without thinking that eventually if you pull all the threads or too many threads out of your own hammock, you're going to fall out. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, don't know, I don't know if that's a good analogy, but... But I, I, it, it, it is mystifying why we're not integrated into our own planet. Like this is, I, I've had this discussion with Harmony before about, you know, she wanted to be someplace natural. Mm. And I said to her, it's like, well, you know, like an anthill is natural. We've made an <laughs> anthill. It's called Calgary. It's natural. <laughs> it's the most natural thing. For, for us to, you know, to create a little honeycomb for ourselves. Mm. What's unnatural about this, you know, noisy, stinking box called a Calgary? Why do you <laughs> want to go someplace else? It's basically what it comes down to for me is I don't, I don't like going places. Um, so why, so why, how, why aren't we, why aren't we integrated? It just doesn't, it's, it's so, it's so dumb. We're just such dumb animals. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, I think, I mean, we've become, because we've got this brain, right? We've, mm -hmm. we have managed to colonize pretty much every corner of the planet because we have figured out how to change our environment to suit us mm -hmm. and how to live in very hostile environments by using some form of technology, right? Like from the simplest mm -hmm. thing of yeah. using clothes to yeah. keep you warm to using ways of cooling so that you don't overheat. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, simplistic, but we have found ways to become incredibly successful. If you think about it in biological term, the success of a species is measured in its ability to put its, you know, offspring into the next generation. Yeah. In mm -hmm. fact, I was... <laughs> When I finished high school in Switzerland, I spent a year working as a nanny for uh, my biology teacher's family. We, we became very close. It was really wonderful. And um, their daughter uh, had leukemia and they, she was undergoing chemo. And so they just needed someone in the house to look after all the other kids. And, mm -hmm. um, and it was an incredibly tough time for them. And we became very close. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, his, his wife, was you became one of my best friends and I was sitting in the kitchen with her one time and I was young I was like 19 and I was crying about some broken hearted thing and um <laughs> and his and the biology teacher came in and he looked at me and he was like oh well this is all about that question how do I get my genes into the next generation <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's right. How do you do that? I was outraged. Yeah. How dare you? How dare you trivialize my teenage broken heart? But anyway, no, I get it's it very now. Important. <laughs> very important to get those genes across. I, 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 I'm really curious about your childhood. I want to go back to Syria. I just have one more, more question about the coral reefs. And uh -huh. I think Harmony might also have um, a, um, a comment. Um, one of the things that I, just to go back to a, a point that you made, 
and I remember reading something that you said that that uh, twenty five. I think I have this right, that the coral reefs make up 1% of the ocean's surface and yet house 25% of its species. And so it's mm. incredibly diverse environment mm. and an incredibly um, interesting environment. Why is it, again, that we should preserve them? And what what happens to us if those go bad? Because, I mean, that's in the water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well... It's a good question because it's that same thing I was mentioning before. It's like, why should we care if they're gone? You know, like, why should we mm-hmm. care? But it's true. Like, they, they actually make up less than 1% of the ocean surface. Most of the ocean is deep, deep ocean that we know very, very little about. And um, mm-hmm. the coral reefs, because remember the story about the little algae that live in the corals? They need light mm-hmm. so that they can photosynthesize. So they're restricted to the upper you know, sort of depending on where you are, I I won't overcomplicate it, but the upper, say, 30 meters of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So they depend on shallow water. So they're only less than 1% of the ocean surface, and yet they're home to 25%, a quarter of all the marine species that we know of. And, um, And I think what was the, what was the statistic... The rainforests and the reef together give us have given us so far about sixty percent of our medicines. Yeah, and uh. so why should we care? This is the from the human dimension. There's worldwide there's about five hundred million people that depend on coral reefs for their livelihoods or for their wow. food. If you didn't have the reefs, the shallow reefs offshore from you know, certain coastlines, well, all the tropical and subtropical coastlines, the coastlines would be completely different. And mm-hmm. I think I read, I read this quite recently, so this must be quite relevant even today, that if just in the US coral reefs were lost, it would, co- it would cost the US economy one trillion US dollars. Mm. Holy... Well, by losing, by losing <laughs> what? That's, what if, by losing what if the we... coastal protection, by losing uh, the, the tourism dollars, the right. fisheries. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, coral reefs produce, um, I actually don't know what percentage of the world's fisheries species, but, um, you know, many of the fish, even those that maybe don't live out their whole lives on coral reefs, spend some of their time there and rely on them for part of their life cycle. Yeah, that's amazing. We were watching Sea Spiracy. I'm oh, sure you've yeah. seen that documentary also. Yeah, Crimes mm. Against the Ocean. Yeah. And they I think in the documentary they said that like 50 to 80% of the oxygen produ- produced on Earth comes from the ocean. Mm. Which is like a huge amount. Yeah. So conspiracy, I have to say, um, made a lot of mistakes. And so, ah. I just, yeah, so that that's something to be mindful of. But, mm. you know, I love that they raised awareness about yeah. the ocean the way that they did. However, I, you know, one thing I want to say is that it is possible to have sustainable fisheries. Um, mm. And um, oh, it can, they it can be done. That's, they, yeah. they believe that it was, that it was impossible. That was the yeah. premise. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of my work has to do with marine protected areas 
and uh-huh. um, and it is possible to have sustainable fisheries if you protect 30% of your ocean area from fishing because right. what happens yeah. is that as the fish breed up in the protected area, they export baby fish and larvae and even adult fish. And it's like having money in the bank, which is your protected right. area. having Yeah, and it creates interest. interest. You, can, you can live off the interest without damaging the capital, right? Yeah. So but what you shouldn't possible. do is eat 98% of your capital. That's right. <laughs> I think I think that was the point. Is that yeah. <laughs> well, we're no I, longer living yeah. the interest. <laughs> well, that's right. So that's what we've done so far. But I mean, there's all over <laughs> Africa, all over the Pacific, all over Southeast Asia. There's these very like poor communities that depend on the ocean for their not just their livelihood, but it's, you know, they're in the situation mm-hmm. that if you don't catch a fish, you don't feed your children that day. Yeah. And yeah. to tell them to go vegan is a little rich. But, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they also have these very ancient traditional systems of yeah. things like taboo areas. So areas mm-hmm. that are closed, you can't go there or you get cursed or something. But ultimately wow. what it does is it protects like a, it, it creates a nursery ground yeah. for the species that you rely on. And, you yeah. know, we've, we've a lot of the studies on marine protected areas show that the whole ecosystem is healthier when you just leave a part of it alone. And right. um, certainly here on the Great Barrier Reef, a, a, a third of the Great Barrier Reef is protected from fishing, completely protected, no take. And, um, yeah. and they're still viable fisheries. Yeah, Within it was interesting because in in that um, in that documentary, Seaspiracy, they did kind of touch upon that that these mm. these communities that do actually depend on fishing for livelihood for their families, you know, are these smaller um, you know fisher fishing communities, mm. and because of the overfishing and our greediness as sort of first world nations, I guess we're actually like taking fish from these communities also, right? Because we're depleting the oceans so much that now yeah. they're not getting the same amount of fish that they should be getting. That's right. Yeah. Was, I mean, the problem is the problem is that industrial scale exactly. fishing, you know, the industrial yeah. scale, indiscriminate, the methods exactly. like long lining and purse seining that just catch everything. I mean, that is very damaging. Yeah. And when you're down there in the the ocean in the coral reefs counting fish, you're you're safe, right? You're not going to get captured in some <laughs> trawling <Yeah>. net. <laughs> yeah, I mean we have sometimes, you know, when we're doing research around the islands and we're diving around the islands and there's other boats there and people are fishing and you sort of like I have swum past, you know, someone's hook and line and I'm going, "Ooh, Better watch that. <laughs> I'm gonna remember that was there when I come back. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, seems like it could be a little dangerous. Uh, I want to um, I want to offer a a, a a counterpoint. Um, I was thinking about your growing up in in Syria and your father's work there, and I wanted to to say something about that that I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, especially because you know the, the Syria has been in a civil war that I think is is 
you could argue um, precipitated by the drought and the their lack of food and water for those for the country people there, and then mm-hmm. moving into the city. If, would you share that opinion? That was yeah, that was one. I mean, I I I want to just plead ignorance because for a while I thought I knew what it was what was going on in Syria because I was still you know in touch with old friends there and. And then, you know, you'd hear a different opinion from someone else. And I just went, well, I'm not there. So mm-hmm. I can't assume that I know what's going on just because, um, you know, I'm sort of read something here or there. So, right. Yeah. But, but yeah. that was definitely one narrative. And it's plausible because, yeah, Syria was very badly affected by drought. Yeah. So with, with that in mind, I, I think about um, a, a parallel issue which may seem bizarre on the face of it, but I think about the the, the deer population in uh, where I grew up in Illinois and Michigan and Indiana, where there are more deer than people, mm-hmm. and they present an enormous um, problem. You know, we, we it costs billions of dollars per year in in car accidents that there's this many deer, and we know that the main reason is that there's no natural predator. Mm. Uh, the wolves have been removed, and so deer are you know feel free to walk the highway, you know, which is a um, because there there's there's no wolves, and so they they destroy the cars. The other thing that happens is that there's an abundance of food because of the you know people's gardens, and mm-hmm. so the deer multiply and multiply like crazy because there's so much food. Mm. So this is a a little. Um, dark but i i often i th- i wonder about that because seeing that the, po- the 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 reason we had an overpopulation problem with deer was that they had too much food and that they didn't have a predator and i wonder well you know we have an overpopulation with people and so you know there are these it's i mean it's it's in, i don't mean to make light of the condition of the syrian people but it's but i also think about the the whole planet and conserving the whole planet and it seems like the main issue is we have too much food and we're making too many people yeah i mean the the issue is that there's too many people it's not a a it's not a popular thing to talk about that at Mm. the heart of all these problems that we have created is that there's too many of us Mm -hmm. and that the other problem is inequality right because yeah there's enough food for everyone but it's not equally distributed exactly and there's enough wealth for everyone but that's also not equally distributed Mm. and Mm. i mean you know you said we're pretty stupid which is true because (laughs) well it's true because we actually have the knowledge and the intelligence and the technology to do things well Mm-hmm. We've put a robot mm-hmm. on Mars, for heaven's sake. I mean, yeah. you know, these are problems that can be solved. It's just that there's not the will because there's too much money being made. and there's too much selfishness. Well, yeah. And also yeah. there's the, the, the damaging activities are still very profitable for a few people. Mm-hmm. And these people yeah. are incredibly powerful. Yeah, and it makes more sense to like take a taxi to outer space for a joyride than to actually <laughs> oh my god solve yeah. critical issues well, on the planet, right? Or at least you know give your employees a bathroom break. <laughs> one pays for the other. 
Yeah. I just feel like that's what we're looking at. The face of it is that nature is going through a corrective cycle and uh, there's a, there's a, um, as, as um, Agent Smith said in, in The Matrix, there's a virus and the nature is going to get rid of it. And that's, <laughs> and then till such time that the planet goes back into its, uh, into a more, you know, state of equilibrium. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are out of balance, right? And, um, and I mean, you know, we see this in some populations when they do have an overabundance of resources and no predators, what happens is there's like this boom and bust, right? Something mm-hmm. will eventually come along to cause the bust. Right. And maybe mm-hmm. it's a virus, maybe it's a war, maybe it's, you know, like, and... Um, well, you, and you understand that I meant that human beings were the virus. <laughs> yeah, she yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 but, okay. She's okay. saying I mean, the yeah. virus is going to yeah. come for us. <laughs> okay, yeah. But it's the same, I mean, with viruses and bacteria. And I mean, that's where we yeah. can study it, right? Because bacteria or like these tiny organisms, right. they have these very short life cycles. And so we can create conditions where we can study evolution as it happens, or we can right. study the effects of certain, you know, disasters on these populations. And this is, you know, the, the pattern is that populations that go boom and that explode and that take over also then tend to destroy themselves eventually because they right. eat up all the resources or they over pollute things or, and, and yeah, I mean, yes, in that sense, we are maybe the bacteria in the Petri dish right now. Yeah. Mm. Cause that's, it looks like we had a, we had a green revolution with nitrogen and suddenly there was enormous stockpiles of food and mm. populations all over the world sextupled until the, instead of being 1 billion, there's 7 billion. Mm. And here we are. And it's, um, I think we're looking at the, uh, the major collapse of, of our, spe- of our species. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, it's it. It seems to me um, personally, it seems inevitable. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think. Okay. I think it's funny yeah. because, like, I talk. Um, I talk with my son Ty, my eldest son, quite a lot about you know whenever I'm expressing like, oh my God, we're wrecking the planet. I'm not doing enough, and he's like, oh, that's all right, Mum. You know, we're just gonna eventually cause our own extinction and the planet will recover. <laughs> that's right. But you know, that's the thing, right? Here you are, here you are, here we are. We have kids. Yes. And our exactly. kids are fucked. Yeah. What do we do about, you know, we want to do something. Well what what can we do? Yeah. And this it's might be one. but you know we, like we may things... not be able to do much, but no, what can but we there's do? there's something you can I mean we can all do something, right? We can all do, there's certain things that are useful to do. And I mean, in the end, you have to like scale it back to this, mm-hmm. maybe a bit of a nihilistic view where you're like, oh, well, everything's fucked. There's no point <laughs> to anything. And so yeah. we might as well yeah. just, you know, do the best we can with what we've got and be mm-hmm. the best version of ourselves and enjoy it. And so, you know, Planting trees. I mean, you know, Sharat always mm. talks about planting trees. He's right on the money. It's one of the most yeah. useful things you can do. And if you live in a city and don't have a place to plant trees, you can fund an organization that's doing tree planting activities. 
Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, there's, the, you know, agriculture, supporting regenerative agriculture is a great way, like buying food that you know has come from really healthy agricultural systems. This mm-hmm. is, this stuff is growing all over the world, you know, as we're finding out how to better look after the soil, um, how planting trees is helping. You can, um, you can even like where you have your money, where you bank makes a difference. You know, is your bank investing mm-hmm. in f- fossil fuel economies? If they are, move right. your money, get your money out of there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it seems like, oh God, what a pain, but you know, it actually makes a huge difference. Right. Um, and, um, and educating yourself, you know, to the point where you kind of go, oh, right. I can see what I can do. That's um, it's, something we can all do. It's it's really funny. People may not know this about Harmony, but I would say at least six to eight times per day, I'll be moaning about you know COVID or the environment or you know my family, and, and she'll say everything dies. <laughs> and it's really kind it's, of it's, it's my a, personal mantra. It is. She just that's really that's harmony to a T. If like I was going to qu- put her on a really, tombstone. I didn't know that everything wow. dies. That's actually what I am going to put on your tombstone. You should. I would love in it. quotes. In everything quotes. dies. And, um, you know, we it's try true. and do our part. Yeah, <clears throat> it's true. It's true. And it's true. Yes. You try and do your part and, and that's important. And I think, you know, this thing of, of practicing yoga and trying to, you know, have that level of self-awareness, kind of gives you the information that you need as well to figure out what you can do. What have you got the capacity to do in your sphere? Right. Yeah. And, and also to, to accept that your time is finite. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. how funny it is that, you know, the fear of death is one of the clashes, right. And, um, (laughs) and becoming friends with the idea of dying. I mean, yeah, you know, we don't do that really, but, this is that the other conversation I have with Ty because he does such a dangerous thing, you know. He yeah. it's basically one of the most dangerous things you can do is to fling yourself off a cliff in a wingsuit and um hope that you've done all the calculations right about the wind and the terrain and the you know, hope that you yeah. get all your tiny little micro movements of your body just right at the right times, etc. And your parachute <laughs> opens and and I say to yeah. him, you know, like I'm so proud of him. I mean, he grew up his, you know, how I had this yearning for the sea. He had the same for flight. He just wanted to fly. He was so like, we would climb up things and look off lookouts and whatever. And he was like six years old and perched off the edge of this boulder going, oh, I wish I could fly. And, you know, that was his theme throughout his whole childhood. So I'm so proud of him. He did it all himself. He made it all happen. He lived rough and put up with being you know poor and virtually homeless and just to pursue this amazing dream of his anyway I digress I'm <laughs> sorry but um yeah, he, you know it's, he, it's also incredible to like think of how these seeds are there from a very young age sometimes yeah and um and how you know sometimes they're just ideas I mean I I say to people I'm a marine biologist and they went oh I really wanted to do that when I was young and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, like sometimes you do have these ideas or desires and then life takes you elsewhere. But yeah. Um, yeah. but we have these conversations like, you know, he's he's already, he's 24, he's already lost friends, you know, they've died, he's yeah. watched them. Wow. 
And I'm like, oh, you know, are you sad? Are you grieving? And he's often like, well, you know, everyone has to die. And these people died doing what they loved. They had a good life. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so yeah. simple. <laughs> you you got to you got to face it if you're going to do that every day. You can't you can't be clinging to life and jumping off cliffs at the same time. That's right. And it's the really amazing <laughs> conversations I have with him as well is that he says, "Oh, you know, mom, everyone thinks I'm an adrenaline junkie, but you know, that's yeah. not what I'm that's not what it's about for me. It's like the moment where I've I've done the step out of the plane, off of the cliff, I've just let go of everything, even my attachment yeah. to life. It just yeah. feels like there's this great, I think, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but there's this great silence. There's like a suspension of wanting anything. Yeah. And I say to him, wow, I've spent 20 years jumping around on my mat chasing that. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. I understand. I get that. That's it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, Incredible. it's it's interesting. Um, I want to ask you a more personal question. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting to sort of see yourselves in your children and to see your children say things that, that you say and do things that you say and do things that you do. And uh, I was wondering, because one thing that we noticed, um, because one of the ways that Harmony and I are trying to help the environment is by eating less calories. And <laughs> is that helping the environment or just? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're reducing. And, uh, you know, we have, you know, there. It's not helping our waistline. I'll no, tell you that much. No, no, so there, it better be for something. There, so we, have ulterior, we have ulterior motivations. I'll admit <laughs> to that. Uh, we have this kind of, uh, like this creeping death uh, fascination that we're also both terribly frightened of, you know, which, you know, looks, you know, like an expanding, an expanding waistline and jowly <laughs> face is sort of like, oh yeah, we used to be thin. That's not death. That's old age. That's much well, scarier than death. I, I just wonder if, um if you've ever noticed that kind of thing, or would you admit to that kind of thing for yourself, Danny? Um. That is a really interesting question, and and I, you know, Harmony, Harmony, and I have chatted about that um, because I, as a teenager, I was anorexic, and then for a couple of years, and then I was bulimic for a couple of years, and um, so I've grappled with eating disorders quite a lot, and but then when, you know, when that stopped, I. I've never really gone there again. Like I refuse in a way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so my kids, I was really wary of just having a normal, having normal eating habits around my kids. And like it, it, we are bombarded by social media and, you know, I guess the social, um, pressures of looking a certain way. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was really lucky that when my boys were that age or a little bit younger, that stuff didn't really exist so much yet. And mm-hmm. like we have no TV. We he, They grew up with no TV and uh-huh. they, they didn't really have any screens until they were well into their teens. And then they became mm-hmm. just as addicted to their screens as anyone else. But <laughs> they had, they had yeah. this 
childhood without screens really and um and so they didn't have that and i was very wary of it and in fact i mean even when i go to mysore i really struggle with that thing that you know you don't eat in the evenings and mm-hmm. you know you, you sort of like i think like not not struggle with it physically because i do it as well because it actually makes sense when you're getting up so early to practice but but i hate restricting what i'm eating because it just i think it i just have shut off that um that side or that time in my life where there was this this um obsessive control over what i was eating and and you'd have to be really obsessive to do that kind of thing you know to be especially to be anorexic um yeah and it's i think i mean what really what really bugged me even then is how much time and energy you have to spend thinking about it. Even <laughs> yes. though you don't actually do the eating, you're thinking <laughs> yeah. about it all, all the time. time. <laughs> I, I even, like, I still have journals from that time where, you know, day after day I'd go, ah, oh, I wish I could think about something else. It's so addictive, the behavior. It's an addiction, you know. And um, yeah. And it becomes it does activate like that part of your brain that's associated with obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so maybe I don't know. Um, but so yeah. So to answer your question, um, I didn't see it in my kids so much. They were more than happy to eat huge vats of pasta every night. And um, <laughs> they, I mean, now that they're adults, it's interesting because sometimes they'll go, "Oh yeah, I'm eating a little less just because it feels better or because I feel more energetic or um, I'm trying this, you know, intermittent fasting because I feel like I've, I've, I'm more awake in the morning. Like they won't relate it so much to their weight. Right. Um, I mean, Ty does sometimes because, but it's because that, that I think their their parachute rigs or their wingsuiting rigs are sometimes geared to their body weight. So yeah. he, he has to know how much he weighs, I suppose. Um, but it's more a, a, like an athlete would, you know, not so much like someone who's worried about their looks. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because I do think that there's a lot of professions that where weight is, a, um, you know, a, a detriment or a, a benefit, you know, depending yeah. on how much you weigh. Well, um, even the, you, you know, know the, yoga even yeah, being one of them. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. so much so. I mean, not, you know, it shouldn't be, but it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you would I hope mean, let's, that. Like, let's be honest, you know, I don't do th- like advanced asanas. There's some asanas that aren't possible, you know, when I'm 15 pounds heavier than I was doing advanced series easily. Absolutely. And I mean, I would <laughs> notice like I would, I would, um, you know, be practicing away and, and just for me, the jump backs, right? Because I'm, oh, like, yeah. my, my proportions are wrong and I'm, I'm relatively compact and a little bit heavy most of the time, but, and, and have like hips and a bum and thighs. Right. So if you have those yeah. things, jumping back is difficult, but um, exactly. I, used to, I used to go in the field, you know, do the mm-hmm. field trips where you, you, you know, you get up, you dive every day, you lug around heavy tanks and dive gear and, you know, you eat like a horse and you still lose weight. And, um, mm-hmm. I'd come back and the first practice after I'd get back, I could always jump back. Oh, amazing. <laughs> because yeah. because you've lost weight. And I was like, yeah. but I've always sort of said to myself, am I willing to restrict my diet so that I can jump back? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
nah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question to ask yourself because yeah. it's it's a real question. Like, what are you willing to sacrifice and give up? And are you sacrificing peace of mind and sanity and contentment just so that you can jump back or do some advanced posture? And and yeah. if that's if that's what's happening, is that even yoga? Like, what exactly. what are you doing then? That's gymnastics and or contortionism or you know dance. Well, then you're, you're doing it to achieve some physical feat, right? And I mean, yeah. even in the sense of like when you have a family, it's like are you sacrificing? Because we used to have dinner as a family that was when we came together every day and discussed right. the day and made jokes and laughed together and and I was like am I willing to say I thought about that a lot because I was like well really actually if you know if I was really doing the ashtanga thing like I do in Mysore I wouldn't be eating now mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know you're sacrificing this togetherness you're sacrificing yeah. this union with your family <laughs> Yeah. For this other idea of yoga, I mean, yoga is supposed to be union, right? So you're sacrificing a form of union with people close to you mm -hmm. to try and achieve a posture, which is not necessarily about union to me. Right. Um, right. Or to create that lightness or that yeah, jump back or. Exactly. Or, and then um, yeah. when, you know, when I'm in the field, marine biologists love to drink a lot. So. <laughs> Often when you're you're living on a boat, like for three weeks at a time, five weeks at a time, and you're together with these people, the crew, the, the scientists, and you, you know, you, you had a you do the days, you know, it might be bad weather, it might be you have all these shared experiences, you do the work, mm -hmm. something might have gone wrong, the boat might have broken down, you might have swept been swept away in a current. And then you get back to the boat or to the research station and you sit down at the computer and you enter the data. And then you have dinner and then and then what people mostly do is they sit together and have a beer or a wine and they have a chat and they unpack the day and then you know ideas come out how to do things better um you get to debrief you know on what's happened and if you don't drink with them there's this separation and mm. i used to do that i used to go to bed early i used to just eat a little bit and then go to bed straight away so that i could get up at 3 30 and and pump out my practice, you know, no matter where I was. And then I'm <laughs> on the boat. boat. <laughs> on the boat. Ah, yeah. It's That's amazing. <laughs> and um and and I used to miss this this, you know, sitting together and being part of the crew and integration. Integration. And I and I real I, you know, it took me years, but in in fact it was almost by accident one time I was I have this dear friend and colleague who is very distractible. So when it came time to enter the data, often he'd get distracted by someone else or by, so it would just take fucking forever. So eventually, <laughs> one day, one day he like got distracted and went off and I was like, ah, oh, I'll just do it myself. So I was, you know, entering the data. You just basically, what you do is you go underwater, you write down numbers of things, and then you take the, the paper, dry it and, and enter, you know, transfer it to your computer. And so I was doing this and I was getting grumpy and the boat was rocking and I was feeling seasick and somebody went, you want a beer here? And put a beer down next to me. And without thinking, I just took a swig and I was like, oh, I feel more relaxed now. <laughs> that's, I don't that's give a shit better. about the data anymore. I'm going to go upstairs <laughs> and have a chat. Right. Yeah. You're like, this is medicinal. <laughs> 
And of course, I understand the dangers of the medicinal aspect of that. But you know what I mean? It was just like this aha yeah. moment of going, I could actually be not flagellating myself over mm. the data, over the practice, over the, you know, correct method. And I could just, yeah. could just fucking relax. <laughs> yeah. We've seen quite a bit of that in this household. Um, I, I wonder, um, growing up, because I, I feel like my own issues with, with body image stem directly, you know, from my mom. There's, there's just no question in my mind. That's where, she, where it came from. She had anorexia. Um, she was at her, you know, her fighting weight was 87 pounds. And, she, and that was... That in kilos. Uh, 40... I don't know, 45, 50. Oh yeah. Um, that's light. That's light. Right. Yeah. 45. Um, it's, it's half, right? So yeah, I weigh 37 40. as a 20 year old. Ooh, oh, wow. see that's, yeah, that's your fighting weight. And so <laughs> I just, I wonder, um, I'm, I'm interested in, in you because you, you left Italy and you went to Syria and then from Syria to Switzerland. And it's so much, is so much difference. And then you've, you've got maybe some, you know, some issues with your family. Um, I'm just wondering where it all might have stemmed from. Like for some ladies, they talk about, you know, maybe a fear of, of becoming feminine, you know, fear of, ha of having hips and, and, you know, trying to, to stave that off by starving. Mm, yeah, I, no, I wonder if you so could talk that. about it at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I do think about it because, because uh, sometimes, because it, you know, I did, I, I hid myself under, sort of all these baggy clothes I, I felt I knew I was pathologically skinny I didn't want to be thinner it was more um it was more a sense of not being worthy it was more a mm. sense of needing to earn my food my reward um by mm. you know over exercising usually but you know a sense of needing to prove something that I was worthy but at the same time like in my childhood the safest thing for me was to be invisible because if I was if I drew attention to myself I might get physically punished right. and so and and so there was this always still now I think you know like in my interactions with people I have this push-pull between uh, not wanting to be sort of seen or not wanting my mistakes to be obvious because I might be punished. Like it's, it's kind of mm -hmm. really subconscious actually now, because I mean, obviously in my conscious brain, I know it's ridiculous, but, but this sense of needing to feel safe and being invisible is safe. Mm -hmm. And then, but then at the same time, yearning to be seen and heard and so I think mm. as when you're anorexic, you're shouting it from the rooftops that there's something wrong. And yeah. um, mm -hmm. and also a yearning to be cared for or worried about. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, my mother was very unhappy and very distracted and, you know, her relationship with my father was terrible. And then she became very ill. She died when I was 19 and she was often oh. ill through my, through my childhood. And, um, and so this, this, there was, you know, when I was anorexic, there was this real open conflict with my mother 
because she was mm-hmm. like, you know, trying to make me eat and I was trying to not eat. And but every now and then she'd be like, well, I'm just going to not pay attention to you anymore because it's driving me nuts. And that would panic me. And I think mm-hmm. that that shows me that I think what I was trying to do is just make her care about me or make her oh. pay attention and look after me. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, basically saying I you know, I need care or I want some care. Yeah. And yeah, so this but you know, now I mean I'm you know, I perform, I'm I'm out there, I give talks and whatever and I think how funny. I'm like this like shy show off. You know, where yeah. I, I'm like, I introvert, like Introvert, extrovert. Yeah. Mm. I, I do the thing and then I want to run and hide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know how that feels. I think you do too, don't you, Harmony? Bit of an inside-outside person. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get her to talk about herself still. There's so much there under the surface that you'd love to know more about. Well, um, maybe so- maybe a few of us should get together and just have a Finding Harmony podcast where we actually find <laughs> harmony. Good luck. I've been looking for her for years. <laughs> 78 episodes in, still haven't found her. It's like, it's yeah. like the, the yoga version of Finding Nemo. Finding yeah, exactly. finding Nemo is right in the coral reefs. I'm just here. Right. I'm, I'm here to facilitate everyone else's <laughs> harmony. Yeah. What do you? Why do you talk about more about your issues with your mom, Harmony? Go and go. Yep. Come on, we're listening. <laughs> yeah. She's still alive, so I can't yeah. say too much. You know. I think. <laughs> I think shortly after your mom past you you went you moved to australia didn't you you went to um the james cook university was that right after uh not well it was interesting because so she passed away um i was still finishing high school in switzerland and Mm -hmm. my sisters were younger than me so they moved back with my dad who was still living in syria so they finished their school in syria in the international school where we had begun and um, my auntie took me in, my mother's sister, and so that I could finish my um, my education. And um, I did really well at the end. And my father, as a as a reward, bought me a ticket to visit some friends in Australia, family friends, people he'd worked with. And um, and their son was a marine biologist and encouraged me to go to Townsville because he said that's where it's at. If you're interested in coral reefs. James Cook University is really the hub and, you know, it became even more so over the years. And, um, yeah, so I I ended up applying. I hadn't even really been thinking of studying in Australia, even though I was sort of interested in going there. But um, I was like, oh, okay, I'll just pick up some application forms. And then I went back and worked for a year and and applied. Yeah. And then I applied and... Um, they were like, okay. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I (laughs) packed up my life and turned up here. (laughs) Well, that makes more sense then it's because it seemed, it seems like such an incredible and exotic decision to say, I'm moving to Australia folks, but it seems like, yeah, you actually, you'd been kind of shorn and now we're quite independent and you're kind of having to take care of yourself. And that's, this is what you wanted to do. That's where you would do it. That's right. 
Yeah. And so what was that like being in Australia all of a sudden? Was it just you were, you were just in seventh heaven. You were you're in the in the reefs, in the water, learning marine, bio, marine biology. It was just yeah. it was just perfect for you. Oh yeah. I was you know, like the first time I stepped off the plane in in Australia, when I on that first visit, not when I moved back to study, I always had this thing. So I used to paint a lot. And um, oh. I always, uh, in Europe, I always had this feeling like the light was really washed out. It was this sort of yeah. bleak almost. And I yeah. came to Australia and I stepped off the plane and I was like, wow, the light <laughs> is so intense. Yeah. It's like this, even now, you know, like on the island, I'll have an afternoon swim and then I'll, I'll come out and the light will be filtering through the trees. And it's just this deep, rich, gold I can't describe it. It's so well, intense. And I just no was ozone, like ozone, Danny. That's what that is. <laughs> That's why there's so yeah. much skin cancer here. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. But it's yeah, but you know, I like noticed that. that too, Danny. When we were in Australia, my my eyes hurt. The light yeah, was so is. intense. It's it's the sun hurts you there. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't believe it. I was like, I and yeah, it was it was so bright. I noticed that a lot of the people my age in Australia looked a lot older. Yes, <laughs> not like, Wow, the sun is full on here. People avoid the sun, yeah. like you know, in in Europe when whenever the sun shines, everyone's out sunbaking. You never see it. Yeah, cover up. You know, they have this yeah. slip slop slap, like yeah. Um, oh yeah, get, you know the the hat and the sunscreen and the shirt and. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, no, I was, I was in seventh heaven. I couldn't believe it. I was studying marine biology. I was in Australia. I lived on campus and then um, this was February 95. I arrived and then mm -hmm. I met this guy who was doing his PhD and got pregnant. And by November oh, yeah. 96, I gave How birth and I was like, Holy yeah. shit, what have I done? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> this wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're so young and you're doing your PhD. It's almost like there's a biological draw. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I know. Right. I got my genes into the next generation after all. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Go on, go on. How did the other two come along? Well, basically, you put the penis Stop into it. the what? You don't want, you don't know this. You don't know. I don't. I have not been successful with you. I can tell you that. Well, I don't know. I want to. I want to hear about this, but yeah, <laughs> they don't. They didn't come out of my head fully formed. No, like Athena out of Zeus. No, no. Um, but so then. Yeah, so then I had Ty, and then two and a half years later, Felix came. I was still in undergrad. I was still doing that. That's crazy. And then wow. um, when I was pregnant with Felix, I was like, um, I think if I want to get some work, I better do a PhD. So I, yeah, so I thought, okay, <laughs> I've got one. But like with, with Ty, I thought I don't really want him to be an only child. Like once I had right. one, I thought it'd be nice for him to have a sibling. So then I had Felix. And then I split up with their dad and my second husband, Peter, um, who we got married in Mysore, actually, by Guruji. Yeah, but, um, I remember. Uh, well, that's, yeah. There's and, quite um, a jump there. And yeah, we're yeah. missing quite a lot, but go okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> so then um, he, when he came into my life, he already had a five-year-old, Barney, who was the same oh, age as Oh, Peter Ty. did. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always say I have three boys because I love them. Oh, yeah. I see nice. now. Yeah. Okay. So 
wait, you had Thai and then you were probably like having a nervous breakdown. You said, oh, I'm yeah. going to do yoga. Well, right? it, was more like I was having, it was more like I was having a nervous breakdown and my husband was like, you better do something. And he was, uh, he had this old. So you blast. divorced him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that came later after Felix. Okay. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too. He still lives here. Right. We're still friends. So um, <laughs> he listens. He's a, he's a fan of the show. Actually, we've had him on. I'm not tell him. <laughs> so um, yeah. So um, he said he had this dusty book in his bookshelf called Light on Yoga, and he said, "Yeah, oh. yeah try this stuff." And he yeah. had he wasn't doing yoga, but I I looked at it and it had in the back, you know, like Iyengar has like set out these weeks that you can put together the asanas in in sequences so yeah like courses you know week one do this week two so i started following that and um and i would put tie down to sleep and i would do that and i was like wow this is really physical and it's really feeding some need of having this thing of my own that's physical and that's you know that makes me breathe and sweat and move and feel my body and um, and so I really, I, I was really kind of stunned, especially mm-hmm. by how physical it was. Mm-hmm. And then I, I had this friend who was into yoga and she was actually training to be a yoga teacher with the IYTA, you know, the International Yoga Teachers Association. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. Like, um, yeah. And, um, and she just dragged me along to her classes and um and I quickly realized I'd been doing everything wrong because I was just copying the pictures <laughs> from the book. <laughs> and yeah. um and um and that was cool. And then when I was pregnant with Felix, she was like, Hey, this guy's coming to Townsville too. Because like you've got to understand Townsville is like fifteen hundred kilometers away from Brisbane. It's like two thousand kilometers from Byron Bay. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's like the sticks right byron bay is in the middle of nowhere well (laughs) okay so like we're we're, we're two thousand kilometers from the middle of nowhere so um, (laughs) so you know but every every now and then because it's a beautiful place people would come and teach workshops so that's that's how we snagged people to come and teach us and um she said she rang me up she said hey this guy's coming to teach like for three weeks every morning it's this jumping around yoga. You're going to love it. And I was like, oh. You're going to love it. But I'm four months pregnant. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, but I'm my four gosh. months pregnant. And she was like. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, well, you know, try to call the teacher and tell him. And he was like, yeah, you should be right, mate. You know how they are here. Should be right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so that's how I found Ashtanga. And who was the teacher? He, oh, look, he was. He, you know, I actually forgotten his name. He, he later, <laughs> he later, he later drowned. It was really tragic. Oh dear. Yeah, oh, not gosh. not while he was here, but but just he and he had taught. Um, so there was this woman here. Oh, everyone then, dies. Oh, yes, everyone exactly. Dies. Here we are again. So this woman called Beth, who who was here, and she was Fuck teaching a weekly. <laughs> A weekly primary series, and um, mm-hmm. you know that 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 um, was all that was available here in Townsville. Right. And um, she had studied with she'd gone to Mysore. She'd studied with Patabi Joyce. Wow! Um, 
And so had her teachers who were from Melbourne, Greg and Tracy Cooper, who ran mm -hmm. a center there for years. And, um, hmm. and so that's how I, I got into it. And, um, and then what happened was that she said, oh, I'm going to leave town. I'm moving to Darwin. And I'd been doing her class for, you know, a couple of years and I was very dedicated and I'd learned all the names of the postures and. Oh, good for and, you. Um, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and she was like, do you want to take over my class? And I was so chuffed that I said, sure. And then I went, Oh fuck. And then I was like, Oh <laughs> shit, I better educate myself here. I'm like, not a yoga teacher. And so <laughs> I'm just like, I'm going to just shut the door because here comes the Ishtanga police right now. But, um, the, so, <laughs> so I was like, teaching Ashtanga with zero idea of anything. And I was like, oh, I better do a teacher training, you know, so I can legitimately teach. And I looked it up and I searched online and I was like, oh, my God, I better go to India. <laughs> wow, that's ass backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. All ass backwards. For, for, our, um, for our listeners at home, especially Martha in Florida, to, to be <laughs> chuffed is to be extremely pleased. Just yes. Yes. <laughs> It's I was flattered. Yeah, I was yeah. flattered. I was flattered. Flattered, pleased. Yeah. Yeah. State of and well being. So she so my ego mm. was was my ego was so um, you know, stroked that I said yes without thinking. You know how you kind of sometimes somebody asks you to do something and you're so um I guess honored, you know, like to be yeah. asked because it's a it's an honor. And you mm -hmm. kind of say yes without thinking of what you're saying. That's that was me. And um, that's the best way. Just and, jump in. Oh my god, I had I was so fucking clueless. And then, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still clueless. I'm still yeah. clueless. Good for I, you. At least Good now I you. know I'm clueless. Back then I thought I knew stuff. Anyway, so so yeah, so in 2001 I went to Mysore and um and uh went oh, to that's, Patabi that's pretty Joyce. early. You went to the old Shala. I did. Shit, you're senior to us. <laughs> She's a senior teacher to us. I'm not, I had no I'm idea. Not. Wow. Not. No wonder um, you're authorized. It's funny, though, because I didn't get authorized. I can't remember when I got authorized, but it was fucking ages later. It was like forever. <laughs> well, because I, I couldn't go very often, right? I couldn't yeah, go very often. You had three children to I take care children. of. I was in at Australia. The yeah. And at the beginning, yeah. I was still a student. I had like no money. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I went in 2001. And then I, I didn't go again in 2000, until 2004. And I was still doing That's my PhD. That's when you got married. Yeah. I, I, I loved along this ancient Dell laptop and, and was mm -hmm. doing, was writing my thesis at the same time. Wow. So, and I, we, I'd left, we'd left the kids with, with the other parents because our exes yeah. also live here and we have this very harmonious co-parenting thing. Well, had, now the kids are old, but um, we had this, nice. this very big, we ended up with this massive blended extended family with new partners and exes and new, more kids. And so it was really good. That's but great. I, Fabulous. Yeah. So it meant that the kids always had a really nice network and it meant that I could yeah. go away and do things without feeling right. like, oh, no, I'm leaving the children. And yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so we got married that year, <laughs> which was quite funny. Yeah. It was like a, a bit of a comedy. Everyone was like, it was like a comedy, a stand-up comedy show because like there was just waves of laughter throughout the whole ceremony <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> 
<laughs> because we got it all wrong. I mean, you know, obviously, like Indian people by that time, they have been to a million weddings and they know how it works. You know, they know yeah. that you have to turn to the right first or go around three times or say this or repeat that or give this to them. And yeah. we had no idea. And so we were just like, you know, Guruji was like talking us through it and getting frustrated and like, right side first. <laughs> You know? Yeah, it would, it would it would be like the the groom giving the ring to the to the the priest or trying to give it to the bride. Like not like no, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, I, I always that. feel like <laughs> I always feel like the the traditional Indian ceremonies are a bit like the macarena. You know, you yeah. have to like know. Oh yeah. Step by step, every, like to where to put your hands one. and yeah. like all the moves to do. And if you get it wrong, you look really silly. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, the shala was full and everyone was dressed to the nines. And we didn't know anyone. And um, yeah. and it was really funny because everyone was dressed to the, and I had like, I had this beautiful sari on and I'd been like Saraswati, I went to Saraswati's bedroom to have it put on. Like they got me ready. Oh, and, good. Uh, that's, that's helpful. Yeah. And so, and it was really funny because Shruti tied my sari and then yeah. Saraswati was like, oh no. And she came and retied it. And then, <laughs> and then the old maid was like, oh no. And she came and retied it even tighter. And then Saraswati was like, okay, where are your bangles? And I was like, I don't. Oh, bangles. no, you didn't forget. You need bangles. Oh, my God. So she said, so she's uh. like, who's here? Like, go and get her bangles. So somebody went and yeah, got yeah. her bangles. Yeah, she doesn't have any of her own to lend you. No. But we're going <laughs> to make go buy some more. Like, all right. You need bangles. Well, there, there yeah. were other students there getting ready at the same time. So she kept sending people away to get me things. And then she was like, right, now your earrings. And my ears weren't pierced. And, oh, no. and no. I was like, oh, my ears. And she was like, oh, she nearly had a conniption. And, um, but yeah, this it, is, it's a scene of the Handmaid's Tale. That's what this is. <laughs> all happened. It's so <laughs> happened. Emma O'Neill was there. I don't know if you know Emma. She oh, is. Sure. She's a piercer. She's gonna... Piercer, that's right. She pierced your ears right then and there? Yes. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. <laughs> She came and stayed with us here at home in Australia. The boys loved her. Yeah. And, oh, um, of course they would. So did I, of course, you know, like she was so fun to have here. And they didn't lose their her. virginity to her, I hope. Uh, <laughs> no. Sorry. They were like eight years old. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't do, would it? No. <laughs> Crimes against humanity. Well, I don't know. She used to take them off on her scooter, but yeah, no, I, mm. I shouldn't say <laughs> Bless her. But, um, so yeah, no, she so she pierced so your fun. ears so you wow. could wear earrings yeah and then they stuck earrings in and and then so I went downstairs and they sat me down next to Peter and she, he was like what's wrong with you you look a bit uptight <laughs> 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 and um and I was like they tied my tar my sorry really tight I can't breathe. And, then like, and they pierced my ears and he was like what and there's this they great photo of him like looking at me with his mouth wide open laughing his Fantastic. head off while I sit there like all rigid and in pain oh my god <laughs> just like they had your lips you know bolted together the... wrapped a sorry around your face <laughs> and you go speak to the giant cross yeah okay oh god damn and you know the funniest thing was that the family Gruji and Sharad and so they were all in their 90s. <laughs> yeah, right. In their they're 90s. Just, they're just wearing their yeah, house their, clothes. Their house clothes, yeah. Because it's not, not that big of a deal for them. Yeah. yeah they're not going to get, they're not going to put a, yeah. All right. 
Oh, God, Sarah so Swati and her mumu is a, yeah. is a sight. Oh yeah, it's a sight <laughs> oh, to yeah, behold. Yeah. So funny. And then it was like because we we went upstairs a fair bit, you know, and hung out and had coffee and and um you know and, and Guruji was like, oh, you know, many children's take, you know, that that was his instruction, yeah. many children. <laughs> yeah. And then like and then 10. in two thousand and seven, yeah. we turn up with these like large children. <laughs> 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 Three of them. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. He's like, wow, uh, those Australian boys. Very, they really very grow. good. <laughs> I have chocolate. I have chocolate for the boys. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Wow. That like, is should we funny. tell them that it's our second marriage? Maybe not. No. 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 Yeah, exactly. No. If they so, do, if they don't, doesn't matter. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so funny. So I, I have a um, an announcement. The um, our research and marketing division had uh, come back with some comments for us, and I just wanted to, if I oh, could, just dear. give them a moment. Um, we had a young a young listener. Um, we think she might be from the Philippines. She believes that I maybe curse too much. Which um, we we did have uh, a number of people chime in that maybe uh, I I use the f word too much. This episode will have a warning at the beginning. <laughs> um, there is a, a father daughter team that listened to the podcast on the way to ballet class. Yeah, this is a true story. And really? uh, they, these are all true stories. Yeah. And uh, the father said that they quite like the show and that my cursing is quite like poetry. Nice. Um, that's a that's a quote. Yeah, uh, we had wow. a uh, we had a comment uh, come into the website from an Australian woman, one of your um, comrades, comrades, compatriots, compatriots. She believed that I was a bit of a. Uh, I think she said, "Let me see, let me check she my said notes." Douchebag. Yeah, she said that I was a bit of a douchebag <laughs> at first, but that I've grown on her, and she quite likes the show now. Just in spite of me no she says she listens to it just oh to hear you that's what she said well so anyway, <laughs> right i just thought wow. um i just wanted to you just want to let people know that we're out there we're listening <laughs> we we're hearing for you we hear uh, for you we hear you we hear you <laughs> we're listening <laughs> 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 But yeah, I curse quite a lot too, so we're, we're in it together. Oh she's doing a whole succession thing. Have you seen the show and Succession? She, she's Danny? doing that for Martha, oh. who really loves the show. So that's why she's Succession, let me write it down. Oh. Yeah, it's I don't know if you can get it in Australia. We, it's HBO, we are, but it's we are listening. Awesome. But wait, wait, they're we're actually listening? <laughs> yeah, we're actually listening. I was like, oh. Sorry. That was the bit oh. from the show. Okay, Sorry. good. Mm. I'll have to watch it so I can get yeah. the reference. Oh, oh, because it's about Australia. It's a it's a biopic of Rupert Murdoch. That's oh. one of your compatriots. Oh my god. That's what it is. That. So it's a fictionalized <laughs> representation of the Murdoch family. Oh, and you know what? As it turns out that they're cunts, those people. <laughs> well, well. In the show. We don't know them for so, real. That's the second episode in a row that I've used the C word. So I just want to apologize to our listeners. Well, but, that's um, good because you saved me from saying it. Because like really <laughs> the Murdoch media is has yeah. no really like the Murdoch media is one of the most insidious 
forces at work against action on things like climate change. Yeah, you might even say satanic. You might say satanic. Yeah, no, yeah. really, because because they they have delayed they have you know they have delayed serious action on climate change almost single handedly through it benefits them, them doesn't it? To absolutely, that's one of the people who benefit from uh, mm. low taxation on yeah. corporations and individuals. Yeah, yeah, they so, are also yes, the main so... producer of Hell's Kitchen. And that's that's an unfortunate our, truth. That's uh, our favorite show. <laughs> also, a very good show. These wonderful hypocrisies that sustain us. Wonderful, yes, wonderful. But you know what? I can live without Hell's Kitchen if it means less crimes oh, against you, the ocean. You can. You know, when they do the octopus episodes, the octopusy episodes, I get very upset. It's really upsetting because that's a crime against the ocean. I don't like it when they kill it's, the octopus. Or you know, it's like they wouldn't eat dolphin meat on the show. Even though people do, and I don't like that. They either. do. No. They yeah, do. So that's yeah, not it's nice. very sad. And turtles get eaten. Yeah. Yeah, that's also very sad. I I think it's it's important. They have a big shell for a reason. They Ugh. don't want to be eaten. I, it's, I think it's important <laughs> to note that if you're a serious environmentalist, like the very best thing that you can do is make any kind of reduction in the beef and cattle industry, because that's what's destroying the rainforest more than anything else. And the yeah. fishing well, and also, the fishes. Sure. But you know, like there's, that's interesting because it's actually quite complex because say, so think about this, compare the carbon footprint of a cow raised somewhere near you on a regenerative farm which has a nice life and then is killed humanely versus mm -hmm. tofu that comes from GMO soybeans coming yeah. from a monoculture that In is Illinois. heavily fertilized and mm -hmm. sprayed with pesticides that has caused mm -hmm. the deforestation of thousands of acres of Brazilian rainforest. What's so we didn't want the show... We didn't want the show to get that complicated. We have a sort of naive, <laughs> utopian view of our own ideas, and so I love, that undermines I, our own. It's so good, though, Danny, that you bring this up because it's really, it's really easy to get. I think, and I think this is a, an important point that you bring up that it's easy to get very um, black and white or very like check mm. the box, right? Like, oh, vegan, check. I'm practicing ahimsa and I'm, you know, doing good things for the environment. Yeah. But as you point out, you know, we can, because we don't know everything, we don't mm. have, you know, <laughs> omniscient uh, intelligence and mm. we can see the effects or the fruits of all of our actions, you know, that we might actually be causing more harm Mm. Um, in other ways or or even by that act that we're un completely unaware of and that things are very complicated. They're not always just, you know, this way or that way, that every every action, every karma we take or make is is mixed, right? It exactly, has, exactly. It has good and, and bad. It has sweet and bitter both within it. And we have to kind of accept that. Yeah, try to choose as best we can but also exactly. accept that accept the bitter with the sweet i guess <laughs> yeah 
Well, and suspend judgment, you know, of others, mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. easy to get very, um, especially, mm-hmm. I think, you know, in the yoga community to get very holier than thou about whatever yes. you've chosen to do or give up or restrict yourself yeah. without, you know, necessarily having thought it through or knowing mm-hmm. other people's needs or restrictions, you know, or abilities or, you know, resources. So, I think, you know, totally. like if, if you, if you, depends also on your motivations, right? So if you're vegan because of, you know, the principle of ahimsa, not wanting to kill animals, um, or because you don't agree with, you know, how animals are being treated, that's a different justification from being vegan because you want to lower your carbon footprint or because you don't want to support um, the kind of livestock industry, you know, for example. So it's worth thinking about. I mean, I, I don't want to be, you know, prescriptive about anything because I don't know. I mean, I do the best I can with what, with, with the knowledge and the resources available to me. And Mm -hmm. I know that it's nowhere near perfect. And Mm -hmm. so, no, I wouldn't try to impose my, um, my activities or my understanding of things on others mm-hmm. because I know that everyone's different. Everyone's got a different capacity. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about like being educated also and educating yourself is that mm-hmm. you, I think the more you learn, the more you realize you don't actually know and that the mm-hmm. answers are yeah. very difficult to, to come to. And Absolutely. It's, sophist- it's sophistry, isn't it? That's what Socrates, Socrates railed against is people who thought they knew mm. just because they were good in one thing. Yeah. They thought they knew so much about everything else. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, now it's especially important because there's this huge misinformation culture going on online, right? Yes. Where people yes. get sucked down these rabbit holes and the, yeah. by, you know, by the algorithms of social media that basically feed you more of what you already think. And I mean, one thing, one Mm. quote I read recently that I really like is that the algorithms produce certainty, not knowledge. And and so knowing where to look for your information becomes ever more important. Yeah. That's that's an amazing because I earlier in the show I wanted to ask you about this whole culture of resistance to science but that really actually answers the question that you have a instead of a scientific inquiry you have a search for certainty mm-hmm. and that's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really well beautifully put, Danny. Mm, not my words. <laughs> I can't <laughs> claim them, but um. But yeah, it, it basically that that answered my question of like, why are people getting sucked in to this stuff that's so, you know, a dear friend Bunkers. sent me this, this article and she said, what does your scientific brain say about this? And it was about COVID and stuff like that. And, and it yeah. was, I mean, the whole thing was written half in capital letters with, you know, the only punctuation mark was an exclamation mark. And I was like, mm. wow, I don't even need my scientific brain. But you know, mm. like, it's not, I mean, you know, I can't sort of sit in judgment and go, oh, this is obviously shit, because right. who am I to know? Like, you know, mm-hmm. what you do is you, you then drill down and figure out what the sources are and go, 
further and further further towards the actual source of the information. And I mean, often in those situations, you end up with nothing. But yeah. but right. the like, there's no there's no you know there's there's actually thin air at the end of the, yeah. the string of well, searches. But but as, the thing is, as Gertrude Stein said about Oakland, there's no there there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. But I mean, the thing Oakland, is, Oakland, California. <clears throat> the thing is too, though, is that is that you know it's it's not really people's job to look stuff up, you know, like right. it's, it's, I, I sort of rant and rail a little bit of, against mainstream media for, you know, not being more accountable about presenting yeah. correct information or the best yeah. possible current scientific knowledge. Right. Because I mean, we're always still inquiring. Scientific knowledge is always evolving and yeah. Science is often refuted by better science, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, what well, one of the one of our problems there with with reporters being responsible is is that the the the, the vast majority of their income has been stripped from them by social media, yeah, and it. so they're really totally pardon the pun they're at sea. <laughs> they don't have an editorial board. They're out there by themselves reporting and they don't really, they don't have enough support to be able to report um, with mm. um, efficacy. There's no peer review. There's yeah, no peer there's no review. Peer review. Yeah. That's, that'd be the title. Peer review is important. That'd be the peer title review. of the episode, yeah, I think. It is. There's no peer review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 police. But I think even peer review in Ashtanga is also very important. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it is, um, it is, that's why I don't consider myself senior, right? Because in science, you know, my peers are those people who are at kind of the same level and have the same degree of experience and all this kind of thing. But in Ashtanga, because you know, I've had all these other things going on, like children to raise and uh, science to pursue, and uh, you know, spent a lot of time at your sea own, in the field. And I haven't really your had own business. That's it, running my own business, yeah. and and uh, so I haven't. I'm very aware that I haven't dedicated the time and effort to the practice and learning and teaching of Ashtanga that, say, you guys have. And so I don't consider myself your peers. I would come to mm. you as a student. I go to mm. people like Santina and Mark as a student, even though we kind of started mm. together, you know, because mm. I appreciate that the time and energy and training that I have sunk into being a marine biologist, you guys have all sunk into Ashtanga. Oh, well, that's so nice of you to say (laughs) (laughs) it's it's it's, yeah it's it's a difficult concept to sometimes wrap your head around because we think you know that sometimes with yoga you know if you've been practicing for 20 years that you know well you've been practicing for 20 years but if you you know maybe you've been practicing for 10 years but that's all you've been doing and you've been studying and reading and devoting yourself like 12 hours a day to exactly the study of yoga, I mean, you know, that's, you're, might be a little bit more steeped in the, in the 
you know, teachings well, than somebody absolutely. who's been kind of just well, doing it once a day, asana for 20 years or well, something. You, you know what it looks like when you stick your own head up your own ass. <laughs> yeah. you've, had a good, you've had a good look around and you know what's up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, there are things that you can know. But yeah. I also think that that's well, one of the problems of the social media that, you know, it's it, like you say, with anything, with science, even with the yoga, it's very difficult to know who's authentic and who isn't when mm. it's all just sort of performative. Mm. It's true. You know, it's, because you, you can't really I do mean, your research. You, yeah, you do. I am, and I mean, you know, with with the social media and the and the performative yoga, I mean, it's tricky, right? Because... Who wants to see someone do the same thing over and over again? Like I, I think about this because sometimes I post something because I've done the handstand or whatever. I've done something on a boat that's kind of cool. So I'm showing off. <laughs> but, you know, like. Or you're doing handstands with chickens, <laughs> real-life chickens. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of, that's that's my, um, I sometimes I like to just be the village idiot, you know, of the of the, of the tribe and um, mm. just, just poke some silliness at things because we all get a bit too serious about it. So, I mean, really, that's all the chickens were about. People w- wanted to give deeper meaning to my chicken yoga photos. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I'm, I'm just really being the like the, the village idiot. I'm just mm. playing the <laughs> like, I'm just it's practicing just, with chickens, man. Lady just, after my own heart. It's actually just funny. There's nothing to it. That's all it is. It's just funny and stupid and why not? <laughs> anyway, but, but, you know, like nobody wants to see you fall over and over again. Like I'm still, I can't get my feet to my head in scorpion. And I try most days and every now and then I post something saying, yep, still not there. But, you know, like you don't actually see much of that. And I think that. I mean, I would love to see more of that for myself because it would make me feel like, oh, right, good. I'm not a freak. And, um, you know, for continuing to pursue this. (laughs) Literally anyone is qualified to come over and just like push on your knees a little bit. It's just fine. Anyone can do it. (laughs) Yeah, but usually I'm alone. Like a nine-year-old boy. But like, you know, if there's like a chicken around, you you can train them just stand on the knee and it'll just the feet will go right down to your forehead just that's all to fly up there that's all it you takes. know what's really funny is that that was the the origin of the chicken yoga was when i was doing <laughs> this i did this series of pictures of going i can't do it like this i can't do it like that i can't even do it with a chicken on myself and, I, and that's how it began <laughs> Well, oh, we'll put so that funny. picture up when we're broad when we're when we're producing the show and we're putting on the show na- show notes. We'll we'll use that photo. Excellent. Yes. That would be nice. I think that would be good. I think that yeah. would that just about describes, you know, my my relationship with this whole thing. <laughs> but like, you know, I mean, I think humor is so funny. It's, it's so essential. Humor is funny. Humor is so yeah. essential in both the practice and the teaching. Because, yeah. you know, it can get really just that, you know, the methodical, repetitive, it can get really demoralizing and people quit. And so yeah. unless you just let in some lightness, it it just starts to lose the the focus or the motivation or the, you know, the reason yeah. behind it. It's like, you, can, you know. You can take yourself a bit too seriously. Too. Totally. Yeah. And you know it, you know it in Mysore, right? When you're stuck next to someone who's just like doesn't even look at you and is just like all over your mat, and you're just like, oh Jesus. 
and then you're stuck next to someone who's like has looked at you and you've looked each other in the eye you've had a smile it's a different feeling yeah Yeah, totally totally and like with last time I was in Mysore in 2019 Santina was there and she was like you're practicing next to me every day and I was like okay (laughs) (laughs) and every now and then we would turn to each other and go what the fuck are we doing here (laughs) <laughs> yeah that sounds like her so good was, to practice with friends it was so funny and it, it we you know it would just take the the tension out of it you yeah. know like the, yeah. this tension starts to build up when you repeat the same thing over and over again without mindfulness you start totally. to build this inner tension this inner grasping towards mm. god knows what the next posture the you know being feeling legitimate in your status as a teacher whatever whatever it is you build this tension inside and you have Mm -hmm. to break it every now and then Mm -hmm. and it just humor is such a good way you know to break the tension totally well in in um in the apocalypse or or shortly after we're gonna come find you and it'd be really nice on magnetic island we can come practice with you danny because i would love to be in your your room and we're gonna come find it yeah come yeah Yeah. and we can have we can raise the chickens and you know that'd be good chickens are one of the animals i'm not allergic to oh very good (laughs) we can get a school of dolphin and we can like uh like like uh i'm also not allergic to sea animals yeah we can no russell no dolphin to them (laughs) and it'll 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 be it'll be like europa yeah europa (laughs) will be just like that I was thinking of the sun god Apollo tying the horses to the sun. It'll be something a bit like that. And we'll just oh, like so funny. make our way across the ocean to Magnetic Island. Yeah. Can't, there's only like 50 people on that island, but like 50, 15 of them practice with you. Do you ever get guests? Do you ever get people just wandering through? No, there's, there's actually 2,500 people. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you but are yeah, wandering no, through, there, there are how could they find through. you? Um, so there's there's actually actually there's five yoga teachers on this island. So what what has happened over the years? Five hundred piece. I know, per. right? Yeah. So what? So as people have sort of turned up and wanted to teach, I've I sort of took it upon myself to gather everyone onto one website. It's just called oh, magnetic nice. magneticislandyoga.com.au. So oh, that's that's little how socialist it works. you are. That's so I know. Nice. It's it's like you know. <laughs> It's it's just mm. I just you know I just thought it would be easier for everyone to have everything yeah. in, one, in one place, but yeah. yeah I mean I just still teach in my own house you know which is great in some ways but in other ways I mean when the kids were little I used to have to you know make sure they weren't here and sometimes you know like when you turn up late when the student turns up late to your studio and you're not there it's not a thing because they can just sit and wait but if someone yeah. turns up early to your class you know, at home, you're still in your underwear, vacuuming the floor and screaming at your children. So it's not very good for, yeah. <laughs> for the image that, of the yoga teacher. <laughs> that sounds quite a lot like Saraswati to me. <laughs> that's just what I, I've seen that. <laughs> oh. Well, I truly hope to make it to your magical island one of these Yes, days, please come, come teach a workshop here. We've this is the other thing that's good about living in a beautiful place. You know, we've had Mark here. We've had Karen Grenfell. Santina's come here. Nice. Um, yeah. Come teach in my be house. Good. We'll do. We'll <laughs> do. Great. Be nice. Be there Love right that. away. 
that's it. And I will be your student. Oh, oh well, <laughs> we think that you're our peer. So thank well, you. Oh, I'll fucking shove your feet on your head. I'll do that for you. Do that. Really nice. <laughs> awesome. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. And this was the most educational episode we've ever had, I think. Oh, I hope it was somewhat interesting. Thanks it so much for inviting me. We did. We did do one on fracking once. That was pretty oh, educational. That's, that is true. Oh, yeah. We did do a fracking one. Yeah. Yeah. This wow, was a yeah. bit more sciencey, though. Yeah. <laughs> get- we love you, Danny. Love you, oh, Danny. Love you both. I miss you guys. Hope to see you miss soon. Miss you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a hard wind and the soil